Well, we come now <clears throat> to what the real point of the parable is. You may have noticed that I didn't address this much in the morning sermon, and that there's a reason for that. Uh, but the, really the point is in the, uh, the parable of the older brother. Now, if you take back to Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus has been describing his gospel ministry. He has offered those to come to him, and, and many came to him. And, you know, of all the people that would draw near to the Savior hearing this gospel message, it wasn't those of a respectable class. It wasn't the religious leaders of his day. It was rather those who were looked down upon. It was, in verse 1, publicans and sinners for to hear him. Now, publicans, you know, were those who were turncoats and traitors, Jews who had aligned themselves with Rome in order to collect taxes from their brothers, uh, oftentimes in very immoral and sometimes you know, violent ways. And sinners, a catch-all phrase for all of those to live lives of scandal, sometimes a sexually immoral life, but certainly looked down upon by scribes and Pharisees. Now it's interesting, isn't it? That here is Jesus, and you know that Jesus magnifies the law of God. He doesn't belittle its obligations. He doesn't cut corners. That's what the Pharisees do. He doesn't exalt man. That's what the Pharisees do also. He preaches the word of God. And yet when sinners, publicans, hear it, they also know that in him is something magnetic that they can, they can actually approach him. They can come near to Him, and they can hear His Word and receive Him. Would to the Lord that we would not give off so austere or unapproachable of a, of a feeling, but people would know that, yes, we, we, we take things seriously, and we love the law of the Lord, but we also love sinners, and we receive sinners, and, 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 and so forth. As one author said, that if... If what you get from Jesus dining with publicans and tax collectors and sinners is that you need to have more friends that are sinners, you've forgotten who you are at the table. And so there's, there's something in this. And yet, at the same time, while this is good and right, there is a group of people, Pharisees and scribes, murmuring. Uh, they're complaining. They are... Uh, you know, making an accusation against him. The subtle implication is this proves who he really is. You know, he, he really is like a sinner or like a publican. And so they have found fault against him. And notice that he receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus begins to open up his parable. Now you'll notice in verse 3 that he spake this parable unto them. And then what follows is actually three parables. Uh, and the, the three parables that follow are all about things that are lost and found. First, there's one lost sheep, then there's one lost coin, and then there's one lost son. And notice, first of all, that in each of these cases, it, it builds in intensity. So if you lose one sheep, it's bad, not a big deal. But the shepherd goes out and finds it. If you lose one coin out of ten, and this would have been a valuable coin and often associated with a woman's uh, wedding garment, uh, headdress. Well, 
Uh, that's kind of a bigger deal. It's 10% of your lost things rather than 1%, and it's of greater value. She sweeps everywhere she finds it. But then, one out of two. A man has one lost son out of two, and this is far more precious than a sheep, far more precious than a coin. It's, it's blood of, uh, you know, bone of bone and flesh of flesh. Someone's so near, and that as they are found, there's rejoicing. So, the shepherd finds it, and there's rejoicing in heaven. The uh, the woman finds it, and there's rejoicing even in the angels in the presence of God. And then the father finds the son, as it were, and there is rejoicing in all of the people, and in heaven, and all the rest. Now, interesting, Kenneth Stewart, I've referenced him a few times, he actually gave four sermons on this one parable, and I would commend it all to you. He says that there's also something of a trilogy, or the trinity, you might say, in these parables. So when you think of a shepherd, that's picturing for us Jesus Christ, right? And so the shepherd who goes out and finds the lost sheep is like Christ, who goes out and endeavors to bring sinners in. The woman who loses her coin, especially a coin that's associated with her wedding headdress, that is something of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is often signified by the bride, and she's sweeping, as it were, the heart, seeking diligently to find it, and when she finds it, rejoices. And then, who would be pictured, as it were, by the Father, who draws his lost son to himself. And, and so there is rejoicing in heaven, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit, and it's bringing to a climax, it's, it's joyful, it's ecstatic, everyone is, is happy because the lost brother is found, the townspeople are together, the fatted calf has been slain, but there's more to the story. There is the older brother. And we forget about the other bro older brother because the story of the younger brother is so beautiful. But the beauty of God's grace to the younger brother is actually magnifying the hardness of the older brother's heart. It's a lesson in contrast, if you understand that. And so now we will consider this older brother who is refusing to enter. And we'll look at it under three heads. Number first, first of all, where he is. So if you go to verse 25, now his elder son was in the field. And so... Uh, Kids, if, if, if uh, children, if you're thinking of it in terms of like a movie, so the younger brother comes home. It's, it's exciting. And there would have been all this music, as it were, you know, uplifting to, to, to signify that it's the climax. And, and it would have aroused your emotions and everyone would have been happy. And then, as it were, the camera shifts over and it signifies on the older brother and the music stops and there he is and where is he? He's in the field. He's in the agros and even in that Greek word you can hear agriculture uh, and anyone who has a farm or has been uh, you know, knows anything about a small town farm you know that a farm is a hard place. It requires a lot of hard work and so the field is defined by labor. It's defined by output. It's defined by sacrifice. And this is really, this is really who he is. You can uh, think of the, of the, the workers um, in the vineyard. 
Those first hour workers, they worked all day and they bore the heat of the day and they actually resented the 11th hour workers for coming in and getting the same amount of money that they did, right? And one of their complaints was, we have been in the field and borne the heat of the day. And so here the brother is, he's in the labors, in the heat of the day, and then he begins to draw near and he hears music and he hears dancing and he hears all these sounds of joy and he begins to say, what is all this? What, what, what is everybody so happy about? And so he calls one of the servants and he says to the servant, why? What's, what's going on here? And notice what the servant says that uh, he said unto him, thy brother is come. He's safe and he is sound in verse 27. And you've got to ask yourself the question, how often did the older brother even think about his younger brother? It's almost like it doesn't even occur to him that younger brother could have been in danger. That maybe the far country would have been a dangerous place. That perhaps he could have been anything other than safe and sound. I mean, he was in want. He was brought to near starvation. But it doesn't seem to register with him. He calls a servant. What's going on? And he says that your brother is come and he is safe and sound. And then he said also that your father has killed the calf. Your, your father has received him. Imagine what he's thinking about his dad. Really, dad? You've received a fatted calf? I mean, don't you remember all the mockery and all the scorn and all the shame this young man has brought upon him? And the result of all of this is anger. So he's in the field. He's in the place of labor. He's imagining for himself his own righteousness. He doesn't care about his brother. He's uh, sad about his dad receiving him. And then when it is told him that he's come together, he's filled with anger. So think about it like this in the, in the context of the parable. 99 lost sheep, one is found. Heaven rejoices. One lost, ki one lost coin out of ten is found. And angels in the presence of God rejoicing. One lost son out of two is found. Everyone rejoicing. Angels, God Himself, townspeople and all the rest. You're angry. God is happy. The angels are happy. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all happy, and you're angry. Who gives this? Are you, are you incapable of this kind of attitude? Can you ever imagine not being happy when you see a great sinner turn to Jesus Christ? Can you ever imagine for yourself envying at the good of others? If you're saying to yourself, no, I can't, then perhaps there's more of the older brother in you than you realize. What's harder for you, to weep with those who weep or to rejoice with those who rejoice? My experience is that for most people, it's actually harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because when you weep with those who weep, 
and you enter into that suffering and you take it upon yourself, you, you have a little bit of an out. You can still say among yourself, well, I'm glad that this didn't happen to me. But in order to really rejoice with those who rejoice, you have to be able to completely deny yourself and say, I'm so happy for this person that they got this good thing that I'm happy that it didn't happen to me. That takes a considerable amount of self-denial. Think about it this way. What if someone who had been very unkind to you, who had denigrated you, who had spoken ill of you, who had betrayed you, who had did all number of evil things against you, and then was converted. Is there, is there nothing in your heart that would, would pull back on you entering into this? Would there not be any sense of envy? I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we see more of this in ourselves than we realize. He's angry. Um, he's angry that, uh, that, that, that dad is responding the way that he is. He's envious of all the celebration that is occurring. He's filled with his own self-righteousness. He is comfortable in the field of God's labor because he puts inputs in and he thinks he gets in, uh, outputs. He's not really reckoning with with the truth of God. He's not really reckoning with God's grace. And as a result, he would not go in. If you look again in verse uh, uh, verse 28, he, he would not go in. And the idea there, he was, he was in a continual state of not going in. His anger has risen to such a level that he is perpetually not going in. So where is he? Well, he's in the field. He's in the field of a legal frame of an input-output idea about God. Now the question is, why he is there? So why does he stay in the field? And the, the reason that he refuses to enter and stays in the field is essentially this. <clears throat> he's full of resentment. He's full of resentment. So, first of all, he resents his life of service. He said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. The idea there is these many years I am slaving away for you. He is considering his life one of service and slavery. And remember that he's a son of the covenant that you know, to, to be in, in God's field of service is, is a good place to be in, 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 a, in a right sense. And, and none of these things are filling him with gratitude, but instead they're filling him with resentment. Romans chapter 6 describes the slavery that comes with sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, but he's not seeing this. He's like those first hour workers. Look, we're the ones that have borne the heat of the day. Those 11th hour workers, they weren't there at 6 in the morning. They weren't ready to be hired. We were, and you're treating them the same as us. And you know, we resent the work that we've been given to do, even though we agreed with you for uh, a fair day's wage. So he is resenting his life of service 
he is second of all uh, considering himself sinless. So he, not only did he say, look, I've been in here serving thee, neither transgressed I thy works at any time. Really? Never transgressed at any time. Imagine saying that. Paul said that he uh, thought of himself as blameless according to the law, but it was revealed to him, thou shalt not covet, and this exposed his sin. But there are lots of people who are in the church, in God's field, and consider themselves good people. Good people that by the works of the law, they can attain unto the righteousness of God. And they haven't come to recognize that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That we are turned aside. That we have gone astray. That we are corrupt and undefiled. You are corrupt and undefiled. And he actually is marshalling this out as evidence of why he should get what he thinks he deserves. So he's resenting his service. He is proclaiming that he is sinless and, and never at any time transgressed by thy law. And he's third of all, sour. He's sour. He says, you never gave me a kid. The younger brother gets a uh, a fatted calf. This is an exorbitant gift. This is this is very you know expensive, as it were, and it's a big party. And he's saying, "Look, you never even gave me a kid. That would have been a much lesser form." He's looking at his dad, and he's essentially saying, "I've been slaving away in this field my whole life. I've been doing everything that you've told me to do, and not only have you never given me a fatted calf, you've also never even given me so much as a kid." Now, how different is this attitude from the attitude of the Syrophoenician woman who said, Lord, I understand that the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, and I'm willing to take myself, my place among the dogs, if I can just but have a little bit. But he's operating in a legal manner that if I do these things, God must do these things to me. And isn't that Job's friends in a nutshell? Out with it, Job. What's the problem? We know that God would never put this kind of suffering upon someone who was uh, not living in some secret sin. So come on, out with it. Tell us. And Job's saying, "Listen, I, I'm not perfect. Uh, I, you know, but I, it's not like I've changed. I, I, I've continued on in all my ways, and I don't understand what's going on here and all the rest. It's a it's a legal mindset, you know. So if you think." To yourself that if I do these things, if I put these inputs in, then God is somehow now in my debt to give me these things. That's not how God works. Now it is true, and it is an encouragement to you, that in keeping God's commandment there is a great reward. But all of these commandments are of grace, and all of these rewards are of grace. God works us an ability to do something by the power of the Spirit. All of our imperfections are purged in Jesus Christ. And God the Father, looking upon that, receives it and rewards it to an encouragement as if we had done the work all of ourselves. It is grace upon grace, and it is to encourage us. But if you think to yourself that, well, you know, 
I'm in the FCC and I've done this and I've done that and you know, where's my reward? I see other people being blessed with rewards, being furthered along and this, that and the other and where is my kid? It's operating under a legal frame. You say what you want about the older brother. But you cannot say that he sounds like a happy Christian. And, and please understand this, that if we're operating on terms of a legal basis with God, that is not the way to happiness. That is not the way to a fulfilling Christian life. That is not the way to bring glory to God or to enjoy Him. But it will end in sadness and disappointment and grief. And like the older brother, you'll be standing outside, not entering in, to uh, the joys that are set before him, but rather resenting your place in God's house. It's a very sad place to be. So he resents his life of service. He resents himself. But second of all, he resents his brother. So keeping on with verse 48, you know, you've never given me a kid. But then in verse 30, as soon as this thy son has come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. So he says of his brother, not my brother, thy son. Do you notice that subtlety there? Sometimes do you do this, parents, when the son has done something wrong and you, you say to your husband or to your wife, look at what your child has done. You're kind of distancing yourself from them. He's not saying, but as soon as my brother came, he says, this thy son has come. And notice what else he says. He says, this thy son, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. He's magnifying the sin that he sees in someone else. Everything about the older brother's speech is rhetoric up to the max. I mean, I've been slaving away in here, never transgressed out of thy law at any time, this thy brother, which has uh, devoured thy living with harlots. You ever do that when you get mad at someone? So, for example, kids don't clean up the toys, and you just say, you have just utterly disrespected me. I mean, they didn't obey, but let's calm down just a little bit in terms of what actually just happened. Uh, if, if, you know, someone doesn't do a chore that they're supposed to do, you know, now it's, you seem to have a difficult time remembering to take the trash out. But now it's, you never take the trash out. You know, you always do this. We speak in superlatives. And there's something that's going on here in the mind of the older brother. And one of the things that, that people that often struggle with this will do is that in order to raise up themselves, they'll actually drag down other people. In order to raise up their own standing they will drag down the standing of others. And so this can happen in a variety of ways, but just speaking out of the fullness of, of my own experience, there was, there was a, a guy I knew in college, and he was good-looking, and he was smart, and he was cool, and this, that, and the other thing. And, and you know, by many accounts, he was the coolest guy. And he viewed everyone as a liability to his own coolness, if you can understand that. 
And so he would constantly come and on the one hand exalt his own image and on the other hand denigrate others, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly. Why? Because everyone was a liability to him. And you know what that guy couldn't do? He could not take a joke. He could not take it when someone would shine the light upon him, even through the medium of humor. He resents his younger brother, and what what all this what all this is pulling out in him is he's looking at the younger brother, he's thinking about what he has done, and at the end of the day, what the older brother is toward his younger brother is jealous. Can you imagine that? He's thinking to himself, younger brother, he got to go sow his wild oats. He got to have the experience in the far country. He got to go and live in the world. And now he's come back. And now he's being received. I never did that at any time. And you never gave me a kid. He's filled with envy. He resents his brother. He doesn't care that he's back safe and sound. He doesn't care that he's not harmed. He is filled with envy. And that's because at the end of the day, all the older brother thinks about is himself. At the end of the day, you pull all the cords together and put everything there. The older brother is consumed with self. So he resents his life of service. He resents his brother. But third of all, and perhaps most notably, you know who he resents most? He resents the father. So he says, As soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Here's my problem with you, Dad. Here's what I'm really angry about. You received him. You received him freely. When he came back, he was willing to take his place among your servants. You didn't let him do that. You didn't put him through a rigmarole. You didn't ask him to prove his repentance. You just received him, kissed him on his neck, slayed a fatted calf, and made him a son. And you know what? You know what the problem with that is? It's not fair. It's not right. There's no punishment. Dad, here's my problem with you. At the end of the day, you're just too soft. And if I were the king of this castle, if I were the head of this house, I would really shape things up around here. Doesn't it sound like Jonah? Doest thou well to be angry? Yes, God. I do well to be angry, even unto death. You know why I didn't want to come here, God? Because I knew you were good, and I knew you were gracious, and I didn't want Nineveh saved. You know what I wanted for Nineveh? I wanted them destroyed. I wanted them brought down. I wanted them eliminated. But you have showed mercy upon them. And God shows Jonah with the gourd, which he didn't work for, and all the rest. And he shows him you know, the, the, the beauty of free grace. And he says, look, I've been good to you. Should I not be good to Nineveh and all the rest? Older brother resents free grace. Most of all, because you know why older brother resents free grace? Because free grace is free. It can't be earned. All he knows is the vineyard. 
All he knows is the field. All he knows is working for it. All he knows is building a tower to heaven. All he knows is earning his righteousness. All he knows is his own pretended righteousness. And the Word of God says, No righteous, no not one. An older brother says, No, I'll have my righteousness. I'll work for it. I will not bow the knee to this free grace. I resent Jesus Christ because He receives sinners. I resent Him because harlots are with Him. I resent Him because the tax collectors are there. And I would rather stand back, hold my nose, and look down upon Him than bow the knee and come to grips with the reality that I need a Savior. That's a legal spirit. That is a legal spirit. What you have here is out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaking. A legal heart coming down and showing out and and in all of its in all of its sinfulness being being displayed before us. Ask yourself the question. Do you resent your do you resent your place in God's church? Would you rather be out somewhere else? Do you resent those who had a fling with the world and came out unscathed and didn't, like you, find yourself in the field all your life, laboring long and hard? And when God saves a notorious sinner, do you resent His free grace? Yes. The older brother is the one who is truly lost. The younger brother was in the far country. The elder brother was in the field of God's service, but make no mistake about this, the far country was in his heart. It's where he really wanted to be. At the end of the day, it's where he really wanted to be. He's the one that's truly lost. Always one for a clever title, Dale Ralph Davis, entitled this parable, uh, the parable of um, the younger brother and the Presbyterian brother. Because the type of attitudes embodied by this older brother, uh, thinking of himself more righteous than he is, looking down his nose upon others, is a type of attitude which is too often found in our own churches. And in case you didn't know, that word for elder brother is presbyteros, which is the same word that we get for Presbyterian, rule by elders. In other words, the older brother's attitude could be sitting in this chair right now. The older brother is in our hearts. It's our natural inclination with Adam to work for our righteousness and not bow the knee. And he's not to be found out there. He's to be found in here. So you have the older brother. He's in the field of God's service. He knows works. He's there resenting his own life, resenting his brother, and resenting his father. But you know, there's someone else there. Verse 28, I <clears throat> skipped over it intentionally. But therefore came his father out and entreated him. Now in this parable, we focus in on the father who is looking for his younger son and runs out, falls upon him, kisses in his neck. It's beautiful. It's great. Wonderful. 
father ready to receive? What about the father that leaves the party to go talk to his older brother, to the older son? He leaves the party behind. He goes out to him, and he is entreating him. The father goes out and seeks the legalistic brother. The shepherd goes out and seeks the one lost sheep. The wife sweeps the house until it's found, and this father wants both sons to come in. Profligate and legalist alike. And in characteristic of the father, he goes out there and he doesn't slam the older brother. He doesn't knock him down. He goes, he pleads, he listens. You know, father could have cut him off right at, the, right at really any point. Never transgressed I thy commandment at any time. Are you kidding me, son? Do you remember this time or that time? What are you thinking? You're slaving away in the father's field. You want to be one of my servants? You want to go out to the far country? Why don't you go? This thy brother, you know, he's your son too. I mean, this thy son, he's your brother too. He could have cut him off at any time, but instead he bears long with this self-righteous screed. And then when he speaks, he opens with this word. And he said unto him, Son, wow, what a tender address. Son, Son, my son. And he describes in the context of this son, and by the way, this is how we're to understand that this son is a son of, of covenant. In what way would he be appealing to him just on the basis of son by creation? But he says, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. He points to his privilege. He says, Listen, you want a fatted calf? You want to make merry with everything I own is yours. You have a right. You have a title to all that I have. Everything is yours. You can have it all. Forget about a kid. Forget about a fatted calf. Son, my son, have you forgotten who you are? And have you forgotten who I am? You didn't earn it. You... you you were just born into this house. It's a great thing as children who are baptized and carried with into their father in their father's arms and brought to the waters, and there the privileges of uh, of, a, of, a, of an inheritance which never fades away, reserved in the heaven. There, that title is bestowed upon you. There, it is sealed up as a promise and. And truly, as a preacher, I could say, listen, everything in the Father's house is yours. It's yours for the taking. If you will but receive, and if you will but believe, you can have it all. You want to fling with the world? Are you kidding me? You want this position or this grace or this promise? How about this? A resurrected, glorified body to behold the face of God. How about this? Escape from the horrors of hell and having a full cup overflowing with joy. Why are you focused on other people? Why are you focused on your own self-righteousness? Why are you focused on how I deal with others? Consider this. This is how I deal with you. And I say, all that is in my house is yours. 
And then he preaches the gospel to him. He doesn't give the older brother any new information. He doesn't say to him, look, you're looking at this the wrong way. Let me try to walk you through it from a different angle. He just says, it's good that we were merry and glad for this thy brother. He is still your brother, by the way. Whatever you say, he is still your brother. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That is essentially exactly what he had already said in verse 24. He's saying, look, there's every reason to be happy here. Because your brother was in a far country, left for dead, he came back. He was lost, he's been found. He was dead, he was alive. And you know what? He didn't deserve it. He doesn't receive the reception. But this is the glory of God. And you should be happy about it. And you should stop with this pretended righteousness. And you should come on in and enjoy the party. We're not told what he did. We're not told if the older brother was uh, convicted of these things. It's not meant to be told. It's a lot like Jonah in that way. Who gets the last word in Jonah? It's God. Shouldn't I be merciful to these people? What did Jonah do after that? They say, all right, I'm back to Israel. Did he come down? Did he go to Nineveh? Did he stay in the gourd? We don't know. But God is preaching the gospel to him. And he's saying, look, heaven is rejoicing. Your friends are rejoicing. Your brother is rejoicing. What's hindering your rejoicing? This is it. That you think of yourself as more righteous than you are. There are <clears throat> so many applications that could be drawn out from this. But I'll just give a few. First of all, one of the reasons that it is so important to preach the gospel. Even in a service like this, where it's a small band and a small flock, is because the poison of self-righteousness is so native to our disposition. And it can infect all of us. It can infect you, and it can infect you. And it can cause you to think of, of yourself in a way that's not right. And we must be uh, exposed and you must be brought to bear with this reality if it goes unchecked if the kind of preaching that occurs even in a small group like this is just constantly you're already a Christian we presume regeneration and all the rest all that does is feed a self-righteous attitude there are churches where it seems that what they think their people need most is a Christian worldview the soil is already good. You just got to sow that seed and it's going to bear abundant fruit. Remember Pastor Beers describing his ministry in air and there he would preach a free gospel to an older group of folks and uh, those for most of whom at least he had every reason to believe that they were sincere Christians and yet they needed it. And so he preached a free gospel to them. At the funeral of Dr. Morton Smith, who was a prominent man in the PCA for many years, the pastor told a story of Dr. Smith asked him to go to lunch with him. So Dr. Smith was retired and he was attending this church. And 
the pastor was kind of nervous. I mean, why does Dr. Smith want to go to lunch with me? And he's a little bit apprehensive about it. And they have some time. And then Dr. Smith looked at him and he said, whatever you do, preach the gospel because I need it. Preach it. Because I need it. That was instructive. We all need it, friends. It strengthens us. It reminds us. And it confronts us. And it exalts the Lord. We ought to come down to this gospel door time and time again. Some of the Puritans would talk about being justified each day. What they meant by that wasn't that your justification could be lost and regained. It's a one-time act, but to come to the experience of, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, and yet God is both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus Christ. And, And coming to experience that with a freshness and a vitality, that kills our righteousness, or that kills our pretended righteousness. We never graduate from the cross. We never move on to something grander. It is the glory of God in Christ Jesus, which is displayed and is confronting to a world that is determined to lose its mind in sin. Here's where self dies and Christ is strengthened in us. Well, friends, if, if we could just see the evil heart of unbelief that lurks within us, The the end of the parable is essentially this. He shines the light upon the Pharisees. He doesn't even say with Nathan, Pharisees, you're the one. He just leaves them to conclude. They're murmuring, and they're saying he receives sinners, and they're upset about it. And Jesus tells this parable, and he comes to the end, and he tells the story of a man who is upset at free grace, and he simply leaves them to the conclusion. Who are you in the story? Pharisees and scribes. Well, may God's grace, may we be delivered from such a legal frame and come to see that grace is free. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Please stand with me for prayer. Father in heaven, we plead your blessing upon this word. And we ask, O God, that we would be exposed and that we would be drawn to the Savior. And that we would have all of our rejoicing in him and his work in the world. Please magnify him in our sight. And please forgive our many sins, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing now Salzburg, uh, excuse me, Psalm 61 to the tune of Salzburg, which is number 128. <clears throat> Verse 3, for thou hast for my refuge been a shelter by thy high, by thy power, and for defense against my foes thou hast been a strong tower. Do 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 <clears throat> Oh God give ear unto 
cry unto my prayer attend from the utmost corner of the land my cry to thee I'll send what time my heart is overwhelmed and in perplexity do thou me lead unto the rock that higher is than I for thou hast for my refuge been a shelter by thy power and for defense against my foes thou hast been a strong tower within thy tabernacle I forever will abide and under covert of thy wings with confidence me hide please stand for the blessing of the Lord the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.